Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Russia's war on Ukraine is now in its second phase, attrition. And in this gray space where death and destruction continue, but the initial shock has worn off, I wanted to ask a question that has nagged at me for years. What's the real Russia? The Russia of great culture, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Gogol, Pushkin, Akhmatova, Tsvetaeva, and a people who quote poetry at each other. It's not a cliché. I've been to parties with Russian friends in Russia, and this is what happens. Or is the real Russia the country ruled almost perpetually, it seems, by people of cruelty and violence against their neighbors, but also against their own people, who seem to tolerate it? I turn to Professor Catriona Kelly of the University of Cambridge and arguably the world's expert in Russian art and culture and its relationship to the state and society. Our conversation was long and lively, so I won't come back at the end of the podcast, and I'll do the commercial now. FRDH is wholly independent. I have no institutional support. I do everything myself. In the five and a half years I've been putting the podcast out, I have grown a loyal listenership, around 10,000 people. Not enough to attract sponsorship, but more than enough to make me think that what I do, my listeners find worthwhile. A handful of listeners make contributions to help me keep the podcast going, most by making small monthly contributions, the equivalent of buying the weekend paper once or twice a month. If you have not made a donation yet, please join this small group of fellow FRDH listeners and make a donation at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Now, back to Professor Catriona Kelly. She was in St. Petersburg up to the eve of Putin's invasion of Ukraine and maintains contact with a wide circle of friends and colleagues through whatever channels still exist. We spoke 24 hours after the first images of civilian massacres in the Kiev suburb of Bucha emerged. I began by quoting from an article by Ukrainian historian Radomir Mokrik. This was, is a quote from a paper written recently by a Ukrainian PhD researcher who's at the Charles University in Prague, and he wrote it just after the war started. And he said, Russia is not Marina Ovsianakova, the news employee at Russia One who held up a sign in the middle of a newscast saying no war. And Russia is not Pierre Bezukhov, the hero, mm. intellectual hero of war and peace. Russia is Vladimir Putin. And I, I think he was putting his finger on a question that I've long had, which is, when I think of Russia, I think of the astonishing cultural civilization produced there. But I'm also thinking of the centuries and centuries of just you know, violence and cruelty that has also been a part of Russian civilization. And I'm wondering if you understand where the difference comes from. Yes, well, in a final sense, it's very difficult for anyone to say. And I know that as we speak, this is particularly in our minds because of the appalling pictures that have come through from Bucha outside um, uh, Kiev. I mean, and generally the sort of um, what one could call the suburbs of Kiev. And there have been pictures of bodies lying there. Um, some of the positions, the places that have been found, they've been found, make it clear that horrible things have happened. Some of them have been at least partly naked. And I mean, the story they tell is absolutely appalling. And 
everyone is grappling with this. I mean, I know that my Russian friends who have been using the internet are absolutely appalled by this. And one response has been to say, well, you can't say you're shocked by this because after all, we've seen the same pictures from Syria, the same pictures from Chechnya. So we've had a lot of pictures. Of course, we can now instantly access in a a way that wasn't true in 19th century culture, that, that there wasn't the sort of instant delivery of the image. We have that sort of pressing upon us. On the other hand, I think it's fair to say that it's not just about Pierre Bazoukhov, but Russian writers were grappling with those problems in the 19th century. And a case in point is Tolstoy. And I just reread immediately before we spoke his 193 story, After the Bull, which is exactly about how you fall in love. You've got that wonderful, romantic, passionate experience. It transforms your entire life. Um, you think of yourself as happy, then you become still more happy. And then you pass the house where the woman you're in love with, she's only 18, lives, and you've taken this sort of real shine to her father as well, and, you know, in a sense of falling in love with the entire family, and then you witness a scene of grotesque brutality outside there, which you have to, um, I don't want to give too much away, to, to link with the family, and you're grappling with that contrast. And, I mean, Tolstoy shows how, uh, the narrator of this story actually has had his whole life ruined by this. Um, you know, he can't get married as he planned. He hasn't really made anything of his life because all his ambitions seem to have fall, fallen away. And the people he's telling the story to sort of tell him that this is not true. But nevertheless, there's a sort of burden that he's bearing. And I think a lot of people are feeling that as well. So if we say that Russian culture is is not Avsyanikov and it's not Pierre Bezokhov, I mean, the, on the one hand, that's true. And I can understand why Ukrainians would want to talk in those terms at the moment. And on the other hand, I do think it's unfair to the people who have been agonising over those very questions. I mean, what one can say is that Russian culture includes Vladimir Putin, it includes the the soldiers who've committed these atrocities. And on the other hand, not everybody in Russian culture is either pretending it's not happening, which is one possible reaction, or positively pretending the opposite, Um, you know, producing all this fake news about how Russia's only gone in to sort of save people's lives and no civilians are being hurt and the Ukrainians are doing it all to themselves, which is the most obscene fiction of all. So I, I think that's in a way the problem, that that it's precisely because Russian culture is <laughs> Marina Psyanikov, it's Pia Bezokhov, and at the same time it's Putin and it's various people who are behaving like kind of butchers, and it should be said, brutalizing each other. I mean, there's a lot of brutality inside the Russian army as well, which is one explanation for why this happens. I think we have to sort of take take that all together. And I think we have to accept ambivalence. If we don't accept ambivalence, then we're sort of essentially behaving like the Russians in the official places at the moment. We can come back to the ambivalence point, because I, if I'm not mistaken, you were in St. Petersburg, just on the eve of the invasion. So you're yes. you, obviously you spent a lot of time there. But before we get to the ambivalence in the present moment, I, I just want to step back and go into into the deeper history. There's a way of, of telling the story of Russia, going back to Ivan the Terrible, as this imperial culture in this very odd position in the middle of this massive landmass that has sought over centuries, many, many centuries, to impose itself on its neighbors. And I I wonder how much of that, 
on the terrible. That's five centuries almost. How much of this is in the is in the social DNA of contemporary Russia? Stalin, we can understand. I mean, the Soviet Union only disintegrated 35 years ago, 30 years ago, actually. But this deeper czarist imperial thing, how much of that is in the social DNA of Russia do you, today, do you think? Well, I think one thing one has to understand is that Russians have often seen themselves as a victim um, or their country as a victim in that con- historical context, which seems counterintuitive. It certainly seems paradoxical. But in the schoolroom, um, people come across a lot of the sort of mythology, if you like, about um, uh, you know medieval history. I mean, in Britain, it would be the Battle of Hastings. And we have sort of you know, plenty, plenty of myths about the good that the British Empire did, um, which I think in many ways are not re- re-examined. But in, in Russia, it's, a, it's a, of a rather different order. It's a kind of mixture of, uh, well, we've always been under threat for out, from outside. We have to defend ourselves. And then the other one is that we have always helped others. So the kind of standard myth about Russian imperial expansion is that other countries wanted to bring us and to enjoy the protection that they were accorded under the sort of wise shield of Russia. So um, a convenient example would be Georgia, for example, in um, the early 19th century, I mean, sort of joining Russia and the fact that a lot of the, the Caucasus was actually conquered and conquered with a great deal of bloodshed sort of pales into significance compared with the sort of idea that actually we have helped others. And this gets repeated again and again. And I remember visiting Pam in in 2016, and it was for the centenary of the university, but they took us on a tour around the city. And first of all, they showed us the Diaghilev Museum, and we'd also been t- taken to the ex- exceptionally good ballet. I mean, Pam has really got an outstanding ballet. And then we were taken to the Motovilleka Rocket Launch Museum. So there was a sort of museum of military technology. And it's true that Motovilleka is really built on the defence industries, um, Motovilica, uh factory has now kind of closed. It's gone bankrupt uh, um, at a rather inopportune moment. But anyway, it is a sort of you know foundation of this urban area. But it was very strange because as as we approached the guide who previously had sort of been telling us factually that you know this was Diaghilev's mansion, her voice changed and she said, um, "And when you see this, you have to remember that Russia is the only country in the world who has produced all this military technology exclusively for." the defense of the nation. And, you know, right then in Syria, as it were, in Aleppo, that kind of military technology was being used for a very different purpose. And I think, you know, people people are, I mean, in a sense, want to believe the best, best of Russia. I mean, they really seem entirely committed to that view of the place. And it is, of course, fantastically naive. It's extremely uncritical and it's very unaware. But it's tenacious and it really won't allow a kind of a, another sort of image of what, what the country could possibly be doing. So you get that and then a, a phrase which has been used sort of turned into a cliche and there's a kind of group of Moscow scholars, scholars who are collecting these cliches. And another one is, well, Russia never begins wars. Russia always finishes them. I mean, there's a whole string of these things. We were under threat Ukrainians, it's their fault. They've behaved in this kind of, you know, provocatory way. So it's, it's a little bit like the sort of thing of, you know, looking at somebody who's been punched in the face and, oh, she shouldn't have provoked him. So that that sort of argument is going on. And I think that 
it, it is what one might call very often supported by historical argument, which is highly selective, uh, as I say, based often on what people learned in the schoolroom, which was highly simplistic and juxtaposed the Soviet Union as a sort of progressive society, which was concerned about liberating people from colonialism and the colonial powers of the West and juxtaposed socialism and capitalism. Now, socialism has gone and nobody seems much to regret that. Capitalism is hardly an antagonist because everybody's embraced it warmly or certainly in the ruling elite. And so the result is, you know, what can you do to differentiate your country from the enemy? And then reaching back into Russian history is the obvious way to do it. But the cruelty is the thing that I find the tolerance for cruelty by ordinary people perpetuated by the Russian ruling elites. So I was... I remember that this will seem an odd example, but I think it's it's telling that in one of the Marquis de Sade's great fantasies uh, called Juliet or the or Vice Rewarded. Juliet is this incredibly debauched French libertine woman, and she has this coterie, and they perform. Only Sade could have come up with the sick debaucheries that he invents and they get bored with them and they decide where can we go to refresh our understanding of cruelty and they make a trip to Russia and there in Russia they are introduced to degrees of depravity and violence that even they could not imagine so even in the 1790s trapped in the Bastille as he was when he wrote this insane book the, the idea that Russia stood for unimaginable cruelty was already part of the currency of European civilization. And then there are the factual base. You know, look, I'm Jewish, and, and the violence of pogroms that continued yes. in Russia were revived in Russia long after the pogrom had stopped being regular factor of life even in Poland. In Russia, it was revived at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century and to great political effect. It's kind of cruelty and, and the tolerance for it. And I just wonder if you have any insights as to why that is part of Russian history and society. Well, first, I mean, a couple of things just to take up in what you said. I mean, one, one of those is that I think it's quite rich to sort of assume that that um, somehow Russia could have afforded the sort of sick imagination of desired things that he wasn't able to think of. Um, <laughs> by himself. I mean, you know, that really is taking us a, a bit towards what's sometimes kind of rather, I think, excessively described as Russophobia, but that does sound Russophobe to me. With pogroms, of course, Ukraine had a very bad um, record of pogroms as well. And, um, and that's something which has been invoked in Russian propaganda and hasn't worked at all, actually, because I think people in Israel know perfectly well, or large numbers of people in Israel know perfectly well that to describe Ukrainians as Nazis is begging a lot of questions about other countries um, in other parts of Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, and their their attitudes towards Jewish businessmen, intellectuals, and political leaders. And after all, as we're constantly reminded, Zelensky is Jewish, and it just isn't an issue in Ukraine. I mean, people have not talked about that. And the other thing is that they have a lower far-right vote than almost anywhere in Europe, I mean, um, including Britain at the moment. And, you know, occasionally people sort of engage in acts of vandalism. I mean, I, I visited Babin Yar 
um, myself and I noticed there was a bag of rubbish which was in a, a rather prominent position, you know, no, close to the Holocaust Memorial. And I think it possibly wasn't accidental, but it wasn't the same as sort of chucking paint over it or painting swastikas. And I think that one thing we've got to accept is that history can work in unpredictable ways and that countries which had a very bad record of anti-Semitism, in France would be an example for that, um, of that, or Germany for that matter, Germany is probably a better example, can actually change um, in different historical circumstances. But coming back to the problem of cruelty, which I think is probably, a, you know, does require more of a scrutiny than being able to sort of bat away those ex- two examples would, would, would suggest, I think it is problematic. I mean, one of it is to do, obviously, with people living in poverty and living in societies where they're kind of primal in the sense that people have to do with all kinds of experience that are just not present in the modern city, such as slaughtering their own animals. And I mean, I'm not trying to advance an animal liberationist argument that is entirely the same. I mean, you know, whether you kill a, a sheep or a hen and that translates immediately into beating members of your family or kind of not caring about bloodletting in a military context. But I certainly think it gives people a different attitude to, to, to life. So there's a sort of unthinking brutality. And I think that is something which you can certainly see in Russia. And you can see it on all, all kinds of levels. And it may not necessarily be brutality, but it's a kind of lack of respect for the possibility that people might get hurt. So when trams stop on a Russian street, they open their doors and then they have you have to step out in front of cars. And the car may or may not stop. So Russians are, on the one hand, kind of actually quite mocking about Western concern for safety. They see this as definitely sort of wussy-ish and it's kind of, you know, part of that gay ropa, as they call it. I mean, you know, um, a slur on kind of the sexual politics of Europe. And on the other hand, when you're up in front of that or um, if somebody falls down on the street, often the reaction would be kind of actually to laugh or to walk by. I mean, the other end of the spectrum, you get people who are hugely responsive to others hurt and pain and so there are Russians who are themselves in precarious positions but are taking time to go and help Ukrainian refugees to act as interpreters they can't collect money inside the country or I'm sure they would be I mean it's now a criminal offense to collect money for Ukraine but people outside Russia are crowdfunding and trying to help Ukrainians and one way in which I've described it in um, you know other conversations has been to say that it's not a neutral culture I mean in other words that There's a lot of sort of militant engagement. There's a lot of anger and hatred which can be expressed and easily find victims. And on the other hand, a great deal of pity. And I think the problem is, I mean, Rowan Williams was speaking about this on Radio 4. The um, former Archbishop of Canterbury. Exactly, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, but also somebody who knows Russian culture really well from the inside and is also the holder of the Order of Friendship, which he was given by the Russian government because his work, work in making Russian culture better known has been recognised. And he was saying that what is really terrible is that the Russian Orthodox Church is not taking a leading role in this and is not taking a role in actually voicing a Christian criticism of what's going on in Ukraine. So one Christian country, not just attacking another Christian country, but attacking a Christian country from the same denomination. I mean, that's that's what's really strange about this. And the Russian church is trying to deal with this cognitive dissonance by accusing the Ukrainian church of iconoclasm at the same time that its Russian soldiers are bombing Ukrainian monasteries and churches. So it's 
I mean, it's a kind of grotesque moral failure. And I think probably I'd want to heighten that, that it's not sort of the bubbling ex existential cruelty, which is unavoidable. It's a massive failure of leadership by the people who should be providing moral guidance to the population, but also kind of making their lives you know, possible to live without this violence. And there's a whole kind of swathe of Russian society that's just been abandoned. And they're immiserated, to use a sort of, technical term of, as used by anthropologists and sociologists, they live in penury. And it's often from exactly those backgrounds that people go into the army because otherwise it's a total social dead end. I mean, you cannot find any employment in you know large numbers of settlements in remote parts of Russia and indeed parts of other republics, autonomous republics, where the, the, the population are actually not Russian, but... Um, also being sort of sucked into this um, kind of imperial trap. And so the result is you're sort of snatched from that background where people are living a really hard scrabble existence and there will be a lot of kind of violent conflict and then pitched from that into the army where there's a great deal of violence which goes on, bullying which goes on inside. And I mean, that's been very well reported going back to the Soviet period and then you, you end up in uh, a place where you're kind of under threat and, you know, people are taking pot shots at you from behind hedges because that's the only way they have to defend themselves. And a granny is cursing you. And that's the very nicest thing that can happen. And people in the population are trying to defend themselves. So I think that not wanting to get into the sort of propaganda myth that if Ukrainians just surrendered, that nothing would be done to them, because I think part of the obviously or indeed probably all the military have gone in sort of you know pumped up and you know after all being been told that first of all the military exercises and they've arrived in Ukraine they've been told that there's actually a war but nevertheless I think the sort of peculiar violence of it is that the sort of contrast between what they were told to expect and what has actually met them on the ground. It's interesting um, because you know in 2012 this is going back a decade there was this very brief moment in western Ukraine when a, a genuine neo-Nazi party had some local electoral success, a group called Svoboda. And I, I went out uh, to do some reporting about them. I interviewed them and I got some sense of where they came from. And then I met with a wonderful academic at the Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv, which is where they had had their electoral success, Miroslav Marinovich. And he had done five or six years in Gulag in the 50s for Ukrainian nationalist activity. And he gave me a very strong sense of, you know, it's, it's not an uncommon story. Uh, a, a fiery, hot-headed young man gets caught and, and sent to prison and then finds himself talking to the guards and finds that the guards are no better off than he and that, in fact, they're as brainwashed into their own worldview as, in a sense, he was. And he came back far less of a violent nationalist than he went to the Gulag in and became an academic and tried to find the truthful way of explaining what Ukraine is as a nation, an emerging nation, a nation that has not been a nation state yet, or only recently, because of history, but that there's a people who are Ukrainian, they speak a language. And what I found really interesting is how quickly this neo-Nazi party disappeared after the Maidan. 
After the, the events on the Maidan in 2014, suddenly there was no need. It was clear that there was a Ukrainian national consciousness that had somehow emerged, particularly among younger people, and they have a lot of younger people. The older generation had to, very few of them survived the war and then Stalinism afterwards. So you have this young, young group, and it seems as if that reality has not managed to cross the border into Russia. That's what's so strange to me. Russia seems not to understand what Ukraine was becoming even before the collapse of the Soviet Union. And what yeah. it has evolved into in, what, 1991 to 2022, 30 years. This is quite a remarkable thing to have observed in some way. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think it's wrong to think that neighbouring countries necessarily understand each other very well. And England and France and England and Ireland would be two counterexamples. I mean, actually, sometimes what happens is that people are so busy differentiating themselves from the next country that they actually don't notice that. And I think there's a lot of condescension in Russian attitudes towards Ukrainians. And it's no accident that it was called Little Russia before 1917. And while in the Soviet period, I mean, there was a an alteration of attitudes, and I mean, Ukraine was very important. I mean, Ukraine um, supplied party leaders in in large numbers, you know, at different levels. I mean, not just for Ukraine, but also at the center. So sort of Khrushchev and Brezhnev are two, two examples of people with very strong Ukrainian connections. But nevertheless, for a lot of Russians, Ukraine sort of remained as kind of Hicksville, really, despite its its long history of very sophisticated scholarship, political thinking. I mean, the fact that it was way ahead of Russia in those departments in the 17th century, for example, but it had definitely been reduced to the state of a province at the stage when Gogol is writing. And I mean, that's one of the things that comes out in some of Gogol's texts. I mean, what I would say is, you know, whilst I have um, large numbers of friends and, and, and connections, I mean, partly because quite a lot of the people that I associate with are anthropologists and so it would not be in their kind of disciplinary profile, or their nature, if they pick that discipline to condescend about other other ethnic groups. But I mean, I do know that, for example, when a friend of mine was wanting to learn Ukrainian for her Western master's degree course, this is in 2014 that she went around to various bookshops in St. Petersburg asking whether they had a Ukrainian grammar. And the response of these highly cultivated book, bookshops was, why are you learning that dog's language? And so there is a sort of sense in which there, there is a sort of prejudice. I mean, the best thing that a Ukrainian can aspire to, and that would certainly be Putin's attitude, is being a Russian. Because, I mean, why would you want to be kind of a bumpkin and, I mean, somebody from a joke nation if you can belong to a great nation? So it's a bit like that kind of, as it were, questionnaire, legendary, when people were asked about, do you want to live in a great country or a normal country? So that's already a kind of um, a choice that's uh, slanted for a lot of Russians. And of course, you would pick being in a great uh, in a great country. You don't want to be in some sort of boring Scandinavian place where everybody just drives the same kind of car. And it's totally monotonous. And we want to be a great power again. But I mean, this is sort of played out, I think, particularly against countries from the near abroad. I mean, this being the sort of Russian term for parts of the former Soviet Union. And I mean, they are seen as places that ought to aspire to a kind of warm relationship with, with Russia. And um, before we brand that as completely fantastic, I think we have to remember that some supporters of Brexit in Britain 
were thinking that it wouldn't be long before the Irish were begging us to be in a kind of union and leaving the EU. And I mean, as I go to modern Ireland a lot, I could just check, check, tell that this was absolutely fantastic nonsense. It was never going to happen. And people think of themselves in the majority as being lucky to be in the EU. And they may have criticisms of the EU, but they certainly would not think those were best solved by being in a union with the United Kingdom again. So I think what we have is, it's a kind of combination of an imperial situation and a big cultural past, as it were. I mean, a very long history of association. And there are two conflicting models there. And one is a model of friendship and blood relationship. And the other is one of enmity. And some of the constituents of this, of this stereotype are the same. So Ukrainians are kind of on the one hand thick and on the other hand, they're cunning. You know how how familiar is that? Is yeah, it? yeah. Well, this is ambivalent. <laughs> so maybe we should go back to ambivalence. And, and <laughs> can you remember what, you were, what we meant? Um, well, we were talking about how Russian culture itself can embrace not just um, Putin, obviously, but also Avsyanikov. I mean, I don't think it's an either or there. Um, so, 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 so on the night that the war started, or the, in the days just before the war started, when you were in Petersburg, did people expect it was about to begin? I think people were dreading it would, which is not the same as expecting it would. And I personally think the atmosphere changed. I mean, my sense of what was likely to happen changed when they started bringing convoys of refugees out of the Donetsk and Luhansk republics, because I thought this looks very like a step from a pre-invasion playbook, because what you were doing, obviously, was um, as the person organising or the government organising these um, evacuations was to suggest that these people were in danger from an Ukrainian escalation. So the whole presentation of the of the, of the invasion was organised so that it should look that Ukraine was the aggressor. Now, that was very difficult to do because there was a great deal of incredibly energetic diplomacy going on from all sides and not just the West, but I mean, I think also from China and some of Russia's other sort of quasi allies kind of saying we have to find a diplomatic solution for this. And at the same time, it's quite clear that the Russians, I mean, Putin um, in the leading role had decided against a diplomatic solution, were just basically presenting propositions that were impossible for the Ukrainians to accept. So that escalation was going on. But I mean, I think that all of us had a sense there was a kind of posturing going on I mean that included people in Russia and that people would draw back from the, the brink and on the other hand as I say this sort of prepare, prepared evacuation I mean even before the recognition of Donetsk and Luhansk republics sort of suggested that there was an order of play that had had been set into motion and so I sort of I sat with people I didn't meet anybody who thought of the possibility of war as anything other than an absolute nightmare. And that included people whom I met in quite official contexts. And I wasn't finding the thing that I found in other circumstances, which is that when you said something, you know, for example, in 2014, I remember, remember saying something about MH17. And I thought that was on relatively safe ground, because after all, it was a civilian aircraft and it had been shot down by somebody. And the response from a Russian was to say, well, we think we've been offended. So there's no possibility of dialogue there. And I wasn't finding that same kind of very aggressive, well, it's the Ukrainians' fault because they should back down. And none of this sort of conversation, which has been, or not conversation, but the shouts that have been happening, electronic shouts of the repeated phrase, which is, where have you been for eight years? Why did you not notice about Donbass? 
And of course, that's not true because people in the West did notice about Donbass. And the other thing, it was very strange that the Russians brought that up now, because if there really was genocide in Donbass, why did they sit around for for sort of seven years and let it happen? Um, They're not on safe territory there. So I think that people have kind of acquired a script and have been quite actually quite relieved to find a, find a script in official propaganda because they're actually finding some way of responding. And I mean, there's a psychological mechanism, isn't there, that people who know they're in the wrong are often very aggressive towards the, the person or, or whatever it is. I mean, it can be an animal or whatever. I mean, towards the entity that they have offended. And they will then say, what well, it's it's all so-and-so's fault. And she locked me out of the house. So, of course, I had to kick down the door. So that sort of vexed situation is familiar in, in a lot of gen- in different human contexts. And I think that's how we have to understand the way that a lot of Russians in the population have reacted in the first instance. And then, of course, they've seen sanctions as a way of offending them. And I, I mean, I don't personally think that the West had any other recourse in this in this situation. And efforts were obviously made to try and avoid sanctions, which would hurt the the core population. So I think there's panic, there's kind of anger, and people know they can't turn their anger against their own government because that's illegal and it'll get them into a lot of trouble. They want to be angry at something. And then as the bodies come home, I mean, some people are reacting by blaming the Russian government. Others sort of say they want to see all the Ukrainians dead because they've done this. I mean, it's a sort of um, a very psychologically vexed situation. It took a long time for people to understand that the Afghan war was a failure. The initial response, and it's completely understandable, is, oh, they're killing our boys, let's kill more of them. And then five years later, you begin to ask questions about the ineffectiveness and that the bodies keep coming home and that the kids come back. And even if they aren't maimed, they're damaged in ways that are unimaginable and they become lost to not only society, but to their families. What really does seem to make the difference is how much state TV people watch. And the country is almost, one could say, divided between people who get all their news from state TV and people who never get their news from state TV. Um, Sounds like America with Fox News. Those who do and those who don't. Listen, I want to bring this to a close before you you run out of water in your coffee cup. So let, let, (laughs) let me just ask you, the question that everybody asks, and I won't hold you to your answer for more than 90 days, which is, does this end and how will it end? It's a big problem, isn't it? Because it had a very dramatic start because the troops crossed the borders. And I think we all hope for an equally dramatic ending. And, you know, nothing would be better than that the Russians kind of, you know, gave up and went away, for instance. I think the terrible thing about it is that even if they have, you know, end up with just the amount of influence that they had before through the Donetsk and Luhansk republics, which are effectively sort of, you know, now Russian enclaves across the border, as it were, partly in passport terms, that would still give them a bulkhead for invading Ukraine again at some future point. And I think that's what everybody's anxious about. And that's why the Ukrainians are so keen to get guarantees if they are to accept neutrality as the outcome. There are a lot of, of, of roadmaps that people are, are kind of presenting, which are clearly non-starters from the point of view of Ukraine. And I think we have to talk about that. I mean, there's a lot of the discussion is the Ukrainians should. And I think that's you know, understandably very offensive to Ukrainians. It, it, it annoys them a lot. And this term West-splaining has been 
coined to, you know, on the on the basis of mansplaining to talk about that sort of situation. So I suppose what I'm saying is I don't know, but I think we shouldn't hope for an instant fix and we shouldn't hope that we can kind of get it all sorted out. And at some point we're going to have to decide, I think, whether we offer more support or we don't and we live with the consequences, which would be um, in many ways a kind of moral moral collapse, I think. And I say that as somebody who is actually committed to pacifism. It's a horrendous situation. I mean, I think the, you know, if one dare joke about this, there's the sort of old joke about the person in the middle of Ireland who's asked the way and he says, if I were you, I wouldn't start from here. So I'm afraid I wouldn't start from here either. We are starting from here. What can one say? Catriona Kelly, thank you so much for all your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for the for the discussion and good luck with your podcasts. Thanks.